Hey, Chris, have you heard that the SEC Speaks is coming back to Washington, D.C. this April 2nd and 3rd? I did, and I'm very excited to be returning to, Kurt, one of the places where we've always found a lot of great content and a shared interest with both what PLI puts out as well as what we talk about here on the Insecurities Podcast. What I love about the program is that nowadays you can attend in person, of course, or online. It's an exciting event, regardless of how you get there. Kurt, I know you and I will be looking to be there in person and really hear some of the great discussion points about where the SEC has been in the past year and maybe where it's going. We hope to see you all there. To learn more about SEC Speaks in 2024, please go to pli.edu slash SEC Speaks. That's pli.edu slash SEC Speaks. And come find us in D.C. in early April. This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. An SEC investor bulletin explains that developers, businesses, and individuals increasingly are using initial coin offerings, also called ICOs or token sales, to raise capital. These activities may provide fair and lawful investment opportunities. However, new technologies and financial products, such as those associated with ICOs, can be used improperly to entice investors with the promise of high returns in a new investment space. Indeed, Stephanie Avakian, one of the SEC's co-directors of enforcement, says ICOs have the potential to fundamentally alter the process by which issuers raise money. So, matters related to ICOs and crypto assets must be a focus for the division of enforcement. The world of cryptocurrencies is an exciting, continually evolving space. We're fortunate to have with us three experts to break down the cryptocurrency regulatory environment today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. On today's episode, Kurt and I will be dipping our toes into the waters of distributed ledger technology, digital assets, and cryptocurrency with three industry leaders in the space, each with a different background and unique perspective on this hot-button issue in law and finance. So first, let's introduce Usman Sheikh, an old friend and a partner at Gowling WLG's Toronto office. Usman was named in 2018 as one of the top 25 most influential lawyers by Canadian Lawyer, and in 2020 as the top fintech lawyer in Canada by Chambers. He serves as the national head of Gowling's blockchain and smart contract group, as well as the national litigation lead for the firm's securities, compliance, and investigations group. Usman provides legal advice on cutting-edge token sales, crypto asset trading platforms, and cryptocurrency exchanges, among other things. He is also litigation counsel on several of the largest and most high-profile blockchain lawsuits and regulatory enforcement matters in Canada. His clients include Canada's largest banks and stock exchanges, the co-founders of Ethereum, 12 of the largest cryptocurrencies in the world, as well as several blockchain pioneers. He's a highly sought-after speaker on blockchain issues, and when he's not on the blockchain speaking circuit, Usman teaches a master's-level course on the topic of blockchain and digital assets as an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto. Later this year, we expect to see Usman's book, The Law of Blockchain Technology, published by Thomson Reuters. Needless to say, Usman is an expert in the space, and we're very lucky to have him on the podcast. Usman, thanks for being here, and welcome to Insecurities. Thanks, Kurt. I feel I should bring you around with me all over the place to give that bio. <laughs> I'm, I'm a good hype man. <laughs> Next up, uh, Teresa Goody Guillen is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Baker Hostetler. Her practice focuses on securities and corporate issues, including investigations, litigation, and regulatory compliance. Teresa also advises developers of digital assets, registered brokers of digital assets, alternative trading systems or ATSs that use blockchain technology, as well as advising clients launching security and non-security digital assets and the accompanying regulatory compliance. 
She has appeared on CNBC, Fox Business Channel, and Bloomberg, and lectures at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business on corporate governance, mitigating corporate risk, and entrepreneurship. Prior to joining Baker Hostetler, Teresa founded and led The Goody Group and has served as an attorney in the office of the general counsel at the SEC, as well as as personal counsel for former SEC chairman Harvey Pitt. Teresa is a featured speaker at the upcoming 2020 Association of Certified Fraud Examiners Global Fraud Conference, co-presenting alongside yours truly in a session regarding practical implications of investigations involving digital assets. Teresa, thanks for joining us on Insecurities. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to uh, speak with you. And good for Chris to get a little plug for his uh, his upcoming presentation in there, huh? Stay tuned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. We've got one more, uh, one more guest with us today. Last but certainly not least is our in-house expert, Jason Samansato. Jason is senior counsel for ZeroX, the company that created and continues to develop the ZeroX protocol for peer-to-peer exchange of assets on the Ethereum blockchain. In addition to serving as counsel for the company, Jason works closely both with third-party developers building applications on top of the ZeroX protocol and with regulators and policymakers wrestling with the legal and policy implications of decentralized technology. Before joining ZeroX, Jason spent over 10 years in private practice, most recently as co-chair of Oryx Blockchain and Cryptocurrency Working Group, and as a member of its White Collar and Securities Enforcement Practice Group. Jason, we're thrilled to have you on the show. It's going to be great to get an in-house perspective. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much, Kurt. Looking forward to it. The focus of our episode today is the current state of play in the digital assets regulatory space. But first, we'd like to provide the briefest of backgrounds on blockchain and cryptocurrency. As of this recording, more than a decade ago, the infamously unknown Satoshi Nakamoto released a white paper describing a peer-to-peer electronic payment system that could replace the financial institution model of commerce common at that time. By developing a system of record agreed to by all participants in the system and shared transparently across all nodes in that system in real time, Nakamoto posited that the trust required to transact could be established directly between the parties to the transaction in the system. This ledger, which would utilize digital signatures certifying the accuracy of transactions in real time across that system, could unlock risks and inefficiencies in the way commerce was done online. To date, The most well-known utilization of this distributed ledger technology is the blockchain model, in which each transaction is agreed to and verified by users of the system in blocks that are chained together in the ledger. The result is an immutable record of information visible to the entire system, but that is decentralized and kept up to date for all of the nodes within that system. The most prevalent use of the blockchain is its foundation for Bitcoin, the most regularly traded cryptocurrency in the digital asset space. Kurt, I know that summary doesn't do justice to the nuance of digital assets and cryptocurrency, but I think we should leave those comments to our guests. Uh, To start, what are some of the other guiding legal issues and decisions regarding crypto? Yeah, so as you can imagine, this is an area, you know, DLT, digital assets, ICOs, cryptocurrency exchanges, that have become a focus area for the SEC and and other regulators, uh, both in terms of the regulation of those tools and products, uh, examinations, and enforcement actions, frankly. In an April 2019 statement, Bill Hinman, director of the SEC's Division of Corporate Finance, explained that activities involving digital assets may be subject to the SEC's regulation and oversight. Things like offering, selling, or distributing tokens, marketing or promoting, buying, selling, or trading, facilitating exchanges, holding or storing, and of course, offering financial services such as management or advice that involves cryptocurrencies or digital assets. The question with respect to any of those activities is whether the digital asset is a security, a topic that we'll discuss at length today. And on several occasions, the SEC has issued guidance about the circumstances that would tend to make a digital asset look like a security that's within the SEC's regulatory purview. For registered investment advisory firms and broker-dealers that are expanding into the digital assets space, participation in the digital assets market has landed on the examination priorities list for the SEC's Office of Compliance, Inspections, and Examinations, or OSI. Among other things, for firms that recommend or participate in the sale or exchange of cryptocurrencies, OSI exams will look at suitability issues, portfolio management and trading practices, the safety of client funds and assets, 
pricing and valuation, which sounds like a particularly thorny or interesting issue to me, uh, the, the effectiveness of relevant compliance programs and controls, and of course, supervision of employees engaged in the cryptocurrency market. Meanwhile, the SEC's Division of Enforcement is also taking a closer look at digital assets markets, and they have a dedicated team in their cyber unit that focuses exclusively on digital assets or cryptocurrencies. As ever, the SEC enforcement staff are viewing cryptocurrencies through an investor protection lens. In 2017, the SEC issued a report of investigation addressing the application of the federal securities laws to the offer and sale of virtual tokens created and distributed on a blockchain by an entity called the DAO. The DAO report, as it is known, uh, is something we're going to talk a little bit more about later on the podcast. The SEC has also brought a number of enforcement actions that allege misconduct by cryptocurrency market participants. And according to Enforcement Co-Director Stephanie Avakian, the enforcement cases fall generally into two buckets. The first is just out-and-out fraud. These are some of the cryptocurrency scams you might have seen on the news or or read about in the newspapers. Uh, The other are strictly regulatory violations or alleged violations. And these are things like failing to register an exchange uh, or failing to register an issuance. Division higher-ups in enforcement have stressed repeatedly that they are trying to be thoughtful about how to handle ICO cases, particularly pure registration cases that do not involve fraud. The SEC and the division recognize legitimate efforts to use new methods to raise capital, but again, they want to make sure that investors are protected and have access to the information they need. So like you, Chris, that was uh, super high level. But you know what we've tried to do is just put people in the context here of what are we talking about when it comes to you know DLT and Bitcoin and what is it that agencies like the SEC are looking at? So enough from us. Let's move to our guests who can speak much more eloquently about these topics. Thanks for that background. So, you know, in terms of the positioning of our guests today, you know, I think each of you brings a unique perspective. Uh, Usman, obviously uh, living and working outside of the U.S. and in in Toronto and with an international firm, will be interested in your perspective, uh, you know, outside of the U.S. borders. And Teresa, you know, you're you're right here in Washington, D.C., you know, in the thick of the the regulatory environment. So there'll probably be a a deep discussion on the U.S. side as well. You know, to give us a better background on some of the details that, that maybe Kurt and I glossed over. You know, Jason, can you talk to us a little bit about you know, just the purpose and use for cryptocurrencies or tokens? You know, how do people acquire them? You know, everything from from exchanging them for fiat currency uh, into crypto, as well as, uh, you know, how they use them down the road. Yeah, definitely, Chris. So I think the main reason why people are buying crypto assets right now is honestly speculation. Um, so most people are acquiring these assets simply to have price exposure to an asset class that they see as offering something unique and not reflected in kind of our pre-existing financial instruments. I think that being said, you're starting to see early stages of people obtaining these tokens or, or cryptocurrencies to use them for a more designed function. So honestly, if, if you're like me and you work in the industry, you see just a ton of possible use cases out there. I think there's a couple that I see as kind of actually being used for those purposes, like burgeoning use cases. I mean, there's obviously payments um, and then also more generally smart contract applications and voting. And so to just go on those really quickly, obviously Bitcoin, when it was first created, was considered as a digital asset for a replacement as cash. Although you don't see very many kind of retail transactions in an asset like Bitcoin for a lot of reasons, There are several assets, including Bitcoin, that particularly get used within the kind of crypto ecosystem as a payments payment asset. I mean, I think more specifically, if you look at a platform like Ethereum, uh, the way the platform works is that each transaction requires a fee to be paid in a native asset uh, called Ether. And there's a lot of use of this, this network application. Um, beyond that, I think there is obviously a lot of excitement and interest in kind of smart contract applications. So this is the area of the industry where I work. And without kind of going too deep into what smart contracts are, these are basically automated programs that are designed to interact with uh, a crypto token in some way. And so what you're seeing is everything from 
early financial applications where you can take one asset and use it as collateral for borrowing another asset um, to things as unique and non-financial as like video games and art as almost like proof of ownership. So it's a very exciting space. And then the one area, uh, the one kind of last area where I think you're seeing actual people using some of these things is around uh, voting. So there's a lot of efforts to basically hand out tokens as a way of demonstrating somebody's interest in a particular network. And then they use those tokens to kind of signal a vote as to how they want to see a project develop. In terms of how most people actually obtain uh, assets for the first time, so there are several kind of user-friendly platforms, such as something like Coinbase, that have the look and feel of applications like Venmo or PayPal that a lot of people are used to. These are generally regulated as money transmitters in the United States right now. Um, similarly, for those that wish to swap or trade out assets, either one asset for another or going in and out of a digital asset to a fiat currency, there are several centrally managed exchanges uh, like Coinbase Pro and Kraken, which probably look like to a lot of the listeners, typical kind of broker dealer platforms. Ultimately, I think what is kind of important to say is in these contexts with with those types of platforms, people are not actually interacting with the blockchain directly. They're using an intermediary to abstract away that complication. It's it's helpful to get that background on how people are are acquiring these assets and and how they are using them or how companies are using them. Um, you know, whether it's for voting or retail transactions or or smart contracts. Um, it sounds like there's still quite a bit of speculative investing in the space. But Usman, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about the applications or uses for DLT and, and tokens. So are, are there things that you would add to what Jason said or things that are maybe particular to what you're seeing in the market in Canada? Yeah, let me just echo what Jason was saying. It's a quite similar experience here in Canada in terms of the acquisition. You can you know, people will typically acquire crypto assets through crypto exchanges. I think that that's the word that you used. We tend to prefer in Canada, and I would say the international regulators tend to prefer the term crypto asset trading platform. They they tend to shy away or resist the use of the word exchange because it does have a defined uh, meaning under our securities legislation. Um, but yes, many people will buy crypto assets through crypto exchanges, they'll buy them through crypto OTC desks, they'll acquire them through what's called crypto mining. Many people will also get crypto assets through peer-to-peer -peer transactions as well. But in terms of the purposes, um, I, I, I wanted to just raise, a, a, I think, a key point, which is, is that a lot of what Jason was mentioning, much of which I agree with in terms of the uses, is very specific to what we call public blockchains. And so these are crypto assets that are sort of native to those public blockchains. Bitcoin is a public blockchain. Its native crypto asset is Bitcoin. Ethereum is a public blockchain. Its native asset is Ether. You can use Bitcoin for payments. You can use Ether as gas to run smart contracts on their public blockchains. But just to be clear, there's many private blockchain projects that are out there and we're involved in many of those private blockchain projects. And those are oftentimes private companies using private blockchains uh, or distributed ledger technology solutions to bring efficiency to their business or within their industry. And many of those private blockchains will involve a token. And those tokens are not for capital raising, but to facilitate the project. So think about a bank using a private blockchain to facilitate loyalty rewards programs or think of um, you know we've got a project up here in Canada where there's an electricity company bringing blockchain to the electricity grid and there is a token that's helping to facilitate certain things on that platform even sharing private health records there's a lot of blockchain solutions in that area and it may involve a token as well all to say that today's focus is largely on public blockchains and crypto assets relating to those public blockchains but there's Many other tokens that are out there that are not <clears throat> that are not that, and oftentimes when I speak to regulators is to remind them of those other tokens and to not act precipitously in terms of regulatory reactions in this space. One has to understand that not all tokens are the same, not all tokens have the same genesis, and there's quite a wide variety out there. 
thanks for that background, Usman, on what's going on outside the U.S. And, and you touched on conversations with regulators. You know, Teresa, I always hear about the Howey test. Uh, and my understanding is that relates to how cryptocurrencies should be regulated, whether they are securities or not. But I'll pause and let you correct me. Uh, talk to us a little bit about investment contracts and the Howey test itself. Sure. So the SEC staff issued a, a framework for how to analyze digital assets and how to analyze whether or not they're securities. And they indicated that the, uh, the proper analysis would be whether or not it's an investment contract. And the analysis for an investment contract goes back to a 1946 Supreme Court case, SEC versus W.J. Howey Company. And basically, that case involved um, an offering of citrus grove development. And so they were offering the sale of land that had citrus groves. And there was uh, it was coupled with a service contract to cultivate the land, along with marketing and then they would distribute the net proceeds that they gained from this to the investor. And the court held that this was an investment contract. And they broke it out into what's four prongs, sometimes called three prongs, and that the investment contract is a security here because it involves first an investment of money, um, which is typically satisfied with the offer and sale of digital assets. Uh, because the digital asset is often purchased uh, or otherwise acquired for value. And it doesn't have to be acquired with fiat currency. But an interesting thing here is that the the consideration has to be tangible and definable. So there has been some issues raised with some digital assets as to whether mining, certain types of mining um, and other actions are actually tangible and definable to meet this investment of money prong. Then the second prong is a common enterprise. So the SEC said that in in its guidance that it typically does find a common enterprise. And uh, it can be either horizontal commonality, which is basically the tying of individual, all the individual investors' fortunes together. It's the pooling of their assets. Uh, And it's usually combined like Howie with that pro rata distribution of profits. And then there's vertical commonality which can be broad or strict. Um, And this focuses on the relationship between the promoter or the issuer. The SEC uh, inserted a a new term here, an active participant. So somebody who is actively involved in in promoting or um, running basically the, the project and the body of investors. So horizontal among investors, vertical between investor and promoter. Then there's the third prong, which is a reasonable expectation of profits. So this is often based on what the company or a promoter represented to the investors at the time or the purchasers at the time. Um, And it's just whether or not a reasonable investor would expect that they would be making a profit off of this. Uh, And then the fourth prong is based on the entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of others. So this is, does the purchaser reasonably expect to rely on the promoter um, or the active participant? And these efforts have to be the uh, undeniably significant ones. So it's not ministerial efforts or um, things that, that aren't essential to the success of the enterprise. Uh, And the issue here oftentimes with digital assets is whether or not the network is truly decentralized. Um, It's now called referred to as like a Bahamas test. If if everybody leaves, is it is the enterprise still going to run? Is the network still going to run or does the the company or um, the group who started the the project, do they have to be there uh, and to keep the project running? So that's basically the 1946, uh, before anybody had even really considered the internet application of an investment contract to now we're talking about digital assets. 
it's a helpful look at at Howie and the investment contract test and and thinking about how we might apply that or think about it in a more modern context. Uh, Teresa, I want to stick with you. Um, I, you know, I mentioned up top that in July 2017, which is almost three years ago, if if you can believe it, the SEC released uh, its so-called DAO report, which um, was a report of investigation involving tokens offered and sold by a virtual organization known as the DAO. In in its report, the SEC found that the tokens were securities and therefore subject to the federal securities laws, but the SEC declined to charge the DAO. The report was intended to be something of a message to crypto issuers about the factors they should consider uh, and whether or not they need to register their issuance or or later, I think, register as exchanges. what what did we learn from the DAO report? How did it change the regulatory landscape for digital assets, cryptocurrencies, and tokens? Yeah, this this report really did signal a big change, a big sea change in the way that we looked at uh, cryptocurrency and just digital assets in general in these ICOs. And there was a there was a split at the time uh, between attorneys who were saying that these were securities and needed to be. Uh, needed to be issued according to the securities laws. And there were attorneys who were uh, helping the ICOs as non-securities. And so there really was kind of this this question out there. There were so many ICOs. Um, and so, you know, as the SEC usually uses these reports as this as a vehicle, basically, to signal how it views a problematic area. And so we've seen it with, you know, the launch of really everybody using the internet and disclosure on the internet and social uh, media and things like that. So then this was similar in that it was, it put everybody on notice that basically um, virtual organizations and their, uh, the offering of the ICOs could be considered securities. And it's a very fact intensive analysis, but they focused also on uh, whether the particular transaction was a security and they, they focused and they, they kept referencing the economic realities of the transaction as opposed to like specific terminology or technology used. So, you know, launching instead of an initial public offering, what we see with registered securities and, and public companies, an initial coin offering really did change how how people viewed this. And so if you see in the court cases now going forward, the SEC does reference the DAO report saying you were on notice that this was likely a security. And they didn't bring actions before the DAO report. So it was really a a sea change and you saw the enforcement. This is um, basically a trigger. And once that report was out, it's fair game. And all ICOs, all digital asset offerings are fair game, and there's no reason for anybody to say that they weren't on notice that it could be a security. Two good points that I'll tease out of there. One is that we should really think about it as as an inflection point, you know, or a point after which the SEC, as a regulator and importantly as an enforcer, was taking a different stance, and that they did in fact start to bring actions after that. They said, "We've put our marker down. Going forward, you're on notice." The, the other thing that I think is important is is this concept that when you're thinking about whether something is a security, it always is a very facts and circumstances in, intensive analysis. Um, and, and with that in mind, Jason, I'm going to tee you up for the biggest it depends answer of all time. Uh, but w- what's your view on the application of Howie and the DAO report? And specifically, should we ever really think of digital assets as securities? Oh, yeah. I'm excited for this one, Kurt. Thanks. Um, So I think generally that the Dow report made sense from a legal outcome, right, with the Dow and generally in response to like many similar efforts in 2017. Like the SEC appropriately identified that these teams were offering investment contracts to prospective investors and promising to, you know, provide them profits based off their work. And I think it was important because it kind of sent that signal that you mentioned to kind of stop what was a very speculative bubble that seemed unhealthy. However, I think that kind of the resultant treatment of the Dow report has been somewhat of a failure. I think the 
kind of general position is probably one like we've been discussing that, hey, the SEC used this report as some way of claiming that the industry is now on notice, right? Um, and since then has kind of primarily pursued an enforcement agenda um, using the Dow report as kind of this key timeline. I, I'll just kind of say as an aside, like, I don't think the Dow report was all that revolutionary. It was, you know, the first time the SEC acted, but it's like I was writing articles in 2015 saying, hey, you know, how he applies to these sales and the like. Um, but I think the bigger issue is since then, the SEC hasn't done a great job of approaching the very difficult question raised by kind of all the tokens that are now in existence that are out there and that people are trading, right? Um, I think one of the confusing aspects of all of this is that the SEC, starting with the Dow report, describes these tokens themselves as the securities. When, at least to me, what we're talking about is regulating kind of the actions of the people in these networks, right? It's it's this centralized team promising you profits and, and distributing this token. I think the problem has been that like in the now three years since then, I mean, the industry has only continued to progress. And most of the enforcement actions that we see out of the SEC continue to be pretty directed to this concept of like the initial coin offering um, and there hasn't been, at least in my mind, nearly enough discussion about, you know, what are these things? How are we going to handle these tokens out in the wild, right? The SEC is not going to be able to step in front of all of this. To the, so to your question of like whether we should think of tokens, you know, as securities, I mean, the answer is obviously yes, because there are literally teams that are trying to build digital assets that are intended to be regulated securities. But I want to try to answer just a slightly different question, which at least my personal opinion is I think Howie is destined to need to be either replaced or refined at some point because it's just not going to be able to scale to address how quickly people can build out unique digital assets, right? As you mentioned, Kurt, it's a very facts and circumstances intensive test. And the truth is that right now it's nearly costless to generate a new token. Just as technology drastically lowered the price for copying and distributing music or allowing for social interactions on things like messaging apps, the same is kind of true of building a scarce digital asset and the ability for you know, your college age kid to quickly spin up a new token and come up with a business idea around it. I think is going to require the law to necessarily adapt over time. And I just don't think the current securities regulatory regime is equipped to handle that development. So, you know, ultimately, are crypto assets sold like securities in many cases? Yes. That being said, I, I'm not sure it's workable to just take a broad brush to the industry and say, yes, all these assets are securities and, and we should fit ourselves within the securities regime. So maybe, you know, down the line, we're going to need a change in, in terms of how we think about the definition of a security. And, and maybe that means supplanting Howie uh, or, or maybe just more guidance from from the SEC, frankly. Uh, but Usman, we're, we're talking a lot about investment contracts. Uh, we're talking a lot about the Howie test. I mean, does that compute in, in Canada? What's the test there to determine what is a security? Yeah, it's a, by way of a very brief answer, it's largely the same. So uh, I should just start off by saying Canada, in terms of securities legislation and securities regulation, is very much a provincial and territorial jurisdictional exercise. So we don't have the national capital markets regulator like the SEC or the CFTC. It's by and large provincial and, sorry, 13 provincial and territorial securities regulators. That being said, their definition of a security is largely harmonized. So if you take Ontario as an example, which is our largest province, and you go to Section 1.1 of the Act, and then that's the definition section, and you go to the S portion of that section, then there's a term called security. And it says that security includes, and then it lists out about 16 different things. And that includes a stock, a bond, a unit, other evidence of indebtedness. And one of those paragraphs or 16 things includes an investment contract. So we have the same concept as you do. And in fact, um, our Supreme Court has, in a case called Pacific 
Coast Coin Exchange adopted the Howey test by and large. So what we're testing for, as Teresa helpfully pointed out, is is there an investment of money? Is there a common enterprise? Is there an expectation of profit? And is that to come from significantly the efforts of others? And so I should just note that a lot of the focus in initial coin offerings tends to be, as you properly noted, on the Howey test. But as lawyers, we're testing for all those other 16 elements. And so we've seen a lot of projects that are captured not only by the Howey test, but by, but by other prongs of what constitutes a security. So, for example, if they have an interest in the assets of a company um, or there's evidence of indebtedness or what have you, they all to say may be captured by those other 16 things or 15 things under that definition. A lot of these ICOs also could be captured completely separate and apart from a security as a derivative. So one typically tests for that. But if, if I may just briefly speak to the Dow report, but I remember when that Dow report came out and my phone started going right off the hook. And it was quite a, a, a surreal moment, to tell you the truth. Because then just a few weeks afterwards, our Canadian securities regulators came out with their own guidance piece on initial coin offerings. And so when you talk about the effect of the Dow report, I mean, the effect of the Dow report was to send the message, although the SEC had in a few other cases part of that, that these initial coin offerings in many circumstances will be, the at least the tokens will be viewed as securities. Um, and that was a clear message. And so typically in enforcement cases, I, I don't want to say exclusively, but oftentimes in enforcement cases, it's not happenstance that the SEC and other regulators are pegging the date for which they're looking for documents from the date of that report and onwards, because their usual retort is, what was your excuse? We put this out there um, for your benefit to put you on notice. What was your excuse? And so there's a number of key elements um, that are set out in that report that are not lost on those in this space. And that includes their analysis on whether tokens are securities, which I think is the main highlight that comes out of that case. But they also address things like a national securities exchange and whether the party that was allowing those to trade, the DAO tokens to trade, would have been captured under that uh, particular provision of your U.S. federal securities laws. They also looked at the involvement of others, like Socket, the developer, and others, in terms of their complicity or aiding and abetting that type of conduct and whether they themselves would have been violated. And, you know, and a critical thing that we take from that report as well is, is that it does show some leniency and some recognition that this area is so new and emerging that they do need to put out guidance in this area. And that is because many people were not typically taking the view that securities laws would apply to what was happening there. So, you know, kudos in a sense to the SEC for exercising their prosecutorial discretion to not prosecute in that case, because it, let's just be clear, it was not an insignificant amount that was at issue that was raised in that case. But what they decided to do is to send a shot across the bow to make sure that people were on notice. Teresa, did you want to jump in on that? I thought Usman made several very good points, and I just wanted to highlight one of them and something that I think is is really interesting. In going through the different types of securities under Canadian law, um, U.S. has the same kind of separating out stocks and bonds and evidence of indebtedness. And when this analysis was first coming up of how do we analyze digital assets, some people were pointing back to this 1958 trading stamps release from by the SEC as to whether or not um, the evidence of indebtedness was actually being should be applied here and we should analyze it under that. So that was another kind of turning point with the SEC guidance indicating that they are using the Howey test by and large with relation to uh, digital assets. You know, Usman, you brought up the jurisdictional nature uh, of, of things uh, north of the border in Canada. And I know here in the U.S., uh, there's really been kind of a, a jockeying of position from regulator to regulator. And Jason, I'm interested in kind of your take, you know, related to where, you know, other regulators outside the SEC fit. And one I, I see across the news all the time is the CFTC. You know, what is their role in, in regulating uh, digital assets or cryptocurrencies from your viewpoint? 
Yeah, so the CFTC takes kind of the default position that any digital asset is ultimately a commodity in some form, whether or not it's a security. So obviously with like the broad definition of a commodity in the Commodities Exchange Act, it's it's kind of broad enough to capture this this whole industry. And I think the way that the CFTC has been approaching this has basically been to allow the SEC to kind of have the first crack at defining whether an asset's going to be a security, um, but as a kind of default position to assume these are commodities to the extent that they are just commodities. Um, the CFTC has the uh, authority to police the spot markets for fraud and manipulation. And you've seen them bring cases against, you know, market manipulators and, and fraudulent uh, digital trading, digital asset trading. Um, and then interestingly, I think for the few assets that have some level of clarity as not being security, specifically Bitcoin and Ether, the CFTC as, you know, the primary regulator of the derivatives market has helped uh, foster in regulated derivatives contract trading in uh, Bitcoin futures, Ether futures. Um, and then the one other element I would add is I think one of the interesting areas to watch with the CFTC is um, there are a lot more tokens that are coming out now that are kind of programmable in a way uh, that might make them look something more like a swap or a derivative. And so at least the CFTC has signaled in some public comments that it would see its uh, regulatory authority kind of being direct oversight of such products. But we haven't yet seen enough, I think, development in that space to see how that plays out. Teresa, any thoughts on how the CFTC plays from your perspective? Yes. And it's interesting that Jason brought up the swaps because I have had some um, there's a lot of jurisdictional overlap here in general, but some jurisdictional overlap with the CFTC and the SEC specifically with swaps. And so I've had some regulatory engagement with specific assets, specific swap arrangements, um, and the underlying asset is a cryptocurrency. So in engaging with the CFTC, they indicated that they considered that a commodity and thus they needed to comply with their regulatory regime. And then engaging with the SEC, they said it was a security. And, you know, these are really difficult to resolve. And, you know, neither neither agency is giving up jurisdiction. And so I know that there's, there's a number of these outstanding where the swap arrangement has not been able to launch because there is not enough regulatory certainty as to which regime they need to comply with and whether or not the other regulator will come after them. Hopefully, you know, if, if you're regulated under one regime, another regulator wouldn't come after you. But this is this is a difficult point right now with the swaps. Um, and of course, there's so much jurisdictional overlap between um, FinCEN from Treasury and the IRS, you know, and the CFTC and the SEC, because depending on who you ask, it's money, property, commodities and a security. And then, of course, Congress is trying to weigh in, too, and has proposed legislation. Uh, in one act, they try to basically remove the SEC's jurisdiction. And in another proposed act, they try and give jurisdiction to the Federal Trade Commission over digital assets. So there's, there's a lot of overlap here. All right, Teresa, thank you. It, it's helpful to understand the regulatory or jurisdictional context and to understand where there may be overlap between and among U.S. regulators with respect to the regulation of cryptocurrencies. We want to pivot back to the SEC or this concept of, of when a, a digital asset may be a security and spend a little bit of time talking about how these issues play out in the SEC enforcement context. There have really been two blockbuster cases so far that we have to talk about to fairly cover digital assets from a U.S. securities law perspective. In 2019, the SEC brought an enforcement action against Telegram Group, arguing that a social media or messaging company had engaged in an illegal securities offering through its sale of tokens, known as grams. Usman, tell us about the Telegram case. What happened? How does or doesn't Telegram satisfy the Howey test? And where do things stand now? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So first, I should say I'm not a U.S. attorney, nor am I trying to provide or capable of providing U.S. advice, so just describing the case. And it is a quite complex matter, but I'll try to deal with it briefly. So 
Uh, as you quite properly noted, back in 2019, it was actually in October, the SEC filed an emergency action and moved for a preliminary injunction and also obtained a temporary restraining order against Telegram and its one of its subsidiaries regarding an alleged ongoing token offering in the U.S. and overseas that had raised about $1.7 million. And the context here is, is that back in, <clears throat> or the year prior, back in January of 2018 or so, Telegram, which is, as you probably know, is mostly known for its product messenger, began raising funds to finance the development of a blockchain, which would be called Telegram Open Network or TON blockchain. And that would be a proprietary blockchain where, among other things, you can use that grams that you just described, Kurt, as part of the blockchain itself. And so the, the, the defendants in this case, Telegram and its sub, according to the SEC, received this 1.7 million bucks from 175 quite sophisticated parties who appear to have all been accredited investors in exchange for a promise to deliver at some point in the future, 2.9 million grams. And it would be, the future date would be the launch of that blockchain. And so why this case has developed so much interest is, is that it was, uh, the, the amounts were raised in a manner very similar to what we see as, or referred to as a SAFT, a simple agreement for future tokens, which is a spin on a more conventional uh, document called a SAFE, a simple agreement for future equity. And so with a SAFT or a SAFE, let's just talk about a SAFT actually, an issuer oftentimes will treat the SAFT itself as the security. And so it will enter into an agreement with, in this case, the 175 purchasers. And because they're all accredited investors, they would benefit presumably from an exemption under, um, under securities laws. And then the tokens would be later issued and the SAFT would trigger at a later time once the platform is fully functional. And the view is that, according to many of these issuers, is that once the platform is live, those tokens will be able to be used functionally as part of that platform. In case, in this case, grams in the, the, the blockchain that they had created. And as such, the token would no longer be viewed as a security, but rather as a commodity or currency without effectively being subject, the theory goes, to securities laws. So in this case, SEC is largely taking issue with that model. And they say that we need to look at the economic realities of the entire transaction. And these purchase agreements with the 175 purchasers who gave up their money and will get tokens in the future, they say it was all part of a single transaction they actually went so far as saying that these 175 initial purchasers were in effect underwriters under your laws. And unless Telegram is enjo enjoined from providing them the grams, which was scheduled to occur towards the end of that month, um, these purchasers will soon engage in a distribution of grams in the public market. Telegram pushed back and said, you're conflating the two separate questions we do admit on the first phase that these agreements with purchasers were securities and we take the view that there was an exemption. With respect to the second phase, in terms of the delivery of the grams at the launch of the TON blockchain, it would not constitute a securities offering. At that juncture, they are a currency or commodity. And then the Howey test fails at that stage for a number of reasons. Ultimately, the court found on that preliminary case that the SEC at least had shown a substantial likelihood of success in proving that the contracts and the understanding at issue, including the sale of the 2.9 billion grams to these 175 purchasers in exchange for that 1.7 million bucks, were part of a larger, broader scheme to distribute grams into the secondary market. And the court agreed that in that context to enjoin the parties, um, in that case, the defendants, Telegram and its subsidiary from, from doing so. So in terms of the factors that they looked at using Teresa's helpful four-part test as the point of analysis, um, the, the court did find that there was an investment of money. So that was the prong, the first prong that Teresa had mentioned. And I think that the parties actually did not really dispute that. 
And the second was is that there was a common enterprise, both on that horizontal and vertical commonality test that Teresa set out. The parties had pooled, their money was pooled together uh, to develop TON and maintain and expand the messenger app. And the ability of each of the initial purchasers to profit would, would have been de- dependent on the successful launch of that TON blockchain and all would have been harmed equally from the failure of the launch. The court also on the third prongs did take the view that there was an expectation of profit. And quite interestingly, this is despite contractual warranties from these purchasers saying that that's not the case effectively. And so what the court said in that matter is is that despite all these warranties or what have you, they really ring hollow in the face of the economic realities of the transaction. And then with respect to the fourth prong, whether it was dependent on the entrepreneurial efforts of another Again, despite written disclaimers to the contrary, the court saw through that and said, we find that there's an implicit intention on the part of Telegram to continue to maintain its commitment to the success of this blockchain post-launch. They're going to continue to have involvement um, afterwards, and that may include also integrating uh, Ton blockchain with their messenger app, in which case the court found that that element of the test would have been been met. So anyway, to answer your question about what happened afterwards, so there was an appeal, but just last month, on May 13th, the CEO of Telegram announced in a blog post, which was posted as, um, or on at least one of his messenger apps, he says, it's a sad day for us here at Telegram. And when you read his blog post, he says that we're no longer developing Ton. And in his blog post, he squarely lays blame on what's happening in terms of the SEC court action. And then on May 25th, from what we have seen, is, is that they, in fact, withdrew their appeal. So that's sort of where things stand with, with that case. Usman, thanks for that rundown um, related to Telegram. I know one of the other cases we wanted to touch on uh, relates to the Canadian social media company called Kick. Uh, with KIK. So the SEC brought an enforcement action against a Canadian social media company called Kick that had engaged in a $100 million ICO in 2017. In that action, the SEC argues that Kick's cryptocurrency, known as KIN, is a security, and the company had therefore illegally raised capital through an unregistered securities offering. Teresa, tell us about the Kick case. How does it fit in the Howey DAO paradigm, and where do things stand now? So Kick is a little bit different than than Telegram. Interestingly, in this case, the SEC argued um, three arguments in the alternative. So the first argument is similar to the Telegram argument of a single scheme theory, saying that basically the um, the SAFs and the public kin sales were one single transaction, just with several stages. The SEC is analogizing kick to Howie in saying that the SAFT sale is analogous to the uh, sale of land of orange groves and that the kin, the digital asset, is akin to the service contract and the marketing. Whereas kick is arguing that the analogy should be that the orange grove land sale is basically the SAFT but then the digital asset is the oranges themselves. It's not the service contract or any kind of marketing in which the sale of any oranges later on would be a commercial transaction and not a sale of securities. So it's interesting that in the single scheme theory, the way that the SEC analogizes Howie and the way that the defendants analogize Howie are to different parts of those transactions. Then the SEC argues a second, uh, an alternative argument that basically these are two integrated offerings. So there's the SAFT sale and the public sale would be, if they're treated as two separate offerings, they should be integrated. And there's this test as to whether or not two offerings are integrated. And there's a variety of factors. Um, you know, whether they were part of a single plan of financing, whether it involved issuing the same class of securities. Then the SEC argues another alternative argument that if these are considered two separate offerings, that they independently violate the securities laws themselves. 
basically the SAF sale and the public kin sale both required registration. Um, and even though the kick had offered the SAFs and it said it was on reliance on 506 C, um, which is an exemption from registration that it required that to be able to use that specific exemption, it required kit to exercise reasonable care to ensure that the SAF purchasers weren't underwriters. And so according to the SEC, the SAF purchasers acted like underwriters, basically buying something to resell it to somebody else. And Kick's failure to prevent this makes it uh, 506C unavailable to them as an exemption, and they had to register their securities. And then separately, that the KIN are um, investment contracts, and that was an unregistered public offering of the securities. And they also, as Usman explained in the Telegram case, applied the uh, the Howey application, the Howey test application here. And neither party contests basically that there was an investment of money for the first prong. For commonality, the SEC also argues strict vertical commonality exists because the purchasers of the SAFs in the kin believe that their fortunes will rise and fall with Kick itself. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that Kick owns a lot of kin. And so the issue here to look out for is whether owning the same fungible asset is enough to create that vertical commonality. And the expectation of profits, you know, both parties argue that there either was or was no expectation of profits. The SEC argues that the minimum viable product was basically an afterthought and that there was no real use for the kin upon launch, uh, upon the public sale, and that there were public statements that would lead uh, a, a reasonable purchaser of, of the SAFT and of the kin to think that there was an expectation of profits. Um, and Kick obviously argues the opposite, that there is that uh, reasonable purchasers would not have an expectation of, of profits. And one of the uh, interesting arguments here to see how the court takes it is the SEC focuses on the fact that there were um, large amounts beyond consumptive use being sold to VCs and other traditional investors. And uh, Kick argues that the large purchaser, the large purchase amount is not indicative of any kind of investment intent because the purchaser uh, who wanted to integrate kin into a digital application would need a large supply of kin to be able to distribute it to its various users. And then the fourth prong, whether it was based on the entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of others, the SEC is arguing that kin doesn't have any kind of um, historical or uh, inherent value. And that there was a lot of focus on post-distribution um, efforts. So after the public sale, that Kick was going to continue doing various things to um, increase the value of the network and, and thus of Kin. And um, Kin argues that any of the profits are based on market forces, not on any kind of effort of their own. And any of their efforts would be infrastructural um, and not managerial. So that's an interesting take from the case law that talks about ministerial versus managerial and kicks um, introduction more of efforts that are infrastructural as opposed to managerial. So it'll be interesting to see how this case plays out. Jason, would love to get your take uh, as someone who's in-house on, on Kik or maybe on where we should distinguish Kik and Telegram. What's your view? Yeah, so I think from an in-house perspective, right, I look at these cases from a very practical perspective of, you know, how, how do what do we need to do to run a company in this industry? And I think kind of what I take away from both of these is absent some kind of significant change in approach from the SEC, or some involvement by policymakers in DC, ultimately the law in the US is gonna be made in the courts on, on these types of cases. So I think 
both are kind of helpful in driving us to the point where we start getting judges to wrestle with some of the difficult securities laws issues presented by digital assets. You know, most notably, I think these cases really get into the question of what is, you know, an acceptable and what's a regulated way to distribute tokens initially. Um, And there's been lots of different models, you know, the ones laid out here with these two. There's also models to distribute tokens based on people interacting with uh, blockchains and programs. There's, you know, and there's kind of always new considerations on that front. All that being said, I think, um, you know, ultimately these the Telegram and Kick cases are inherently a bit limited to uh, addressing these issues uh, related to initial offerings. And so their resolution will only be so helpful for the industry going forward. Um, you know, I think ultimately Howie is not too controversial in the context of capital formation like this. And, you know, as I said, although these cases can answer some interesting questions, uh, there's still a lot of interesting questions that remain out there as it relates to all of these digital assets that are, are circulating within the wild right now, um, including things like Kin itself. Um, so uh, I think I, I walk away with with more information and, and, and anticipation to see courts get involved, but thinking that there's a long way to go on, on getting ourselves to a point where we have some level of clarity as to how everybody's going to navigate the securities laws issues. Great. So much to think about still, and it'll be interesting to see how the case law evolves and if there is further guidance from any of the regulators about how we ought to think about this or, or Jason, maybe how you ought to think about this from an in-house perspective, but really good to get all of your takes on the legal landscape and how cryptocurrencies and, and tokens fit in or, or where they don't perhaps. So thanks all. Well, Chris, that was a great conversation today. We covered a lot of ground talking about the Howey test and investment contracts, the cryptocurrency regulatory space, and some interesting cases. One of the things that we didn't touch on today with our guests that we really have to talk about before we go are Howey coins. Chris, have you invested in Howey coins? I haven't, but I think it's now it's time to jump in. Howie Coins is the hottest ICO on the market right now, providing a purported 1% daily return on Tier 1 investors in the pre-ICO stage of secured purchases. Now, I know everyone listening along here may be nervous about dipping their toe into the digital currency space, but this is a can't-miss investment that's looking for a minimum growth rate between 7 and 15% annualized. It's almost impossible to lose money on this, Kurt. I mean, Chris, it it almost sounds too good to be true. Is it? I would think it is, but I have here a live celebrity review from at BoxingChamp1934 that says, I'm all about Howie Coins. This thing is going to pop at the top. And with reviews like that, Kurt, I can't see this ICO going anyway but up. <laughs> sounds sounds totally legit. Uh, uh, unfortunately, you and I both know that it's that it's not. Um, so, for any of our listeners who aren't acquainted with Howie Coins, a couple of years ago, the SEC released uh, this this fake uh, initial coin offering or, or ICO, and they called it Howie Coins. Of course, named after the famous Howie test. And the the point was to raise some red flags for investors. Uh, the SEC put it out through their investor education arm and they really just wanted investors to note that this is an exciting new space there is undoubtedly some money to be made but when you have things like claims of guaranteed high returns celebrity endorsements there's actually a howie coins website and on it they claim to be uh, compliant with sec regulations when you start to see these things uh, in, in investing literature or on a website your radar really needs to go up because while of course you know we we talked with jason and the team about some of the very legitimate business purposes for which you might use uh, DLT or or tokens or cryptocurrencies, there are still some folks out there who, who who maybe don't have your best interests in heart. And so, Howie Coins was a way for the SEC to uh, to try to educate the investing public. 
And for me, Kurt, I was really interested because I thought it was attributable to the famous comedian Howie Mandel, who I'm a large fan of. Uh, but unfortunately, that didn't turn out to be true. One other red flag that that the SEC makes a, a point of here that I think is, is great to remember as people get excited about cryptocurrency. Uh, be wary of any cryptocurrency you can buy with a credit card. Uh, if they're yeah. taking your credit card uh, numbers down, I mean... Most of us aren't buying and selling, you know, publicly traded securities. Uh, you know, I'm not buying shares of Apple on on an Amex card. So too should you probably avoid uh, digital currencies that uh, you know are, are happy to take your your credit card number along the way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good it's a good point. Uh, so you know, sorry folks for any of you that thought this was you know hashtag next big thing. I think you're going to have to look elsewhere. Yeah, if you're interested in more info on that, feel free to go to HowieCoins.com and click through until you get a a stern finger wagging from the SEC's uh, Investor.gov website at the end. Spoiler alert. With that, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And special thanks to our guests, Teresa Goody-Guillen, Usman Sheikh, and Jason Somansato. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for future discussion on episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.